Well, good morning, East Vancouver. Would you stand with me as we read God's word from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 this morning? There, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came... And he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, help us to love our neighbor who does not look like us. And where we have committed the sin of partiality knowingly and unknowingly, we ask for forgiveness. Help us, your church, to bear witness to your diverse kingdom as we love one another in Christ. Amen. Well, there would hopefully uh, be few among us who would disagree with this statement uh, that racism and that prejudice is bad. Uh, there would be few among us who would openly champion racism this morning. Uh, my prayer is that we as a church would be united against this ancient and pervasive sin, eager, eager to crucify it. See, the conflict I think that you and I are currently experiencing, both outwardly and inwardly, is not whether or not racism is a sin, but rather, how should we respond to the sin of racism as Christians, as a church? See, I think the reality is that when it comes to how many of us think of racism, myself included, we've become what James calls a friend of the world a friend of the world. Our solution, our actions, our thinking, not marked by an otherworldly kingdom with an otherworldly king, but if we're honest with ourselves, truthfully, by our commitment either to the ideological right or the ideological left. And I know we've become a friend of the world in this area, in this way, because I struggled this week. I struggled this week to write a sermon on racial reconciliation and, and healing, not as a conservative, but as a Christian, stopping more than once to ask the question, is this what I think the Bible teaches about racism and racial reconciliation, or is this what my political tribe teaches? Is this what my Twitter echo chamber affirms? So the question I want to answer today is, is this. What does a Christian response to the sin of racism look like? 
And in order to ensure that we're getting a Christian response here, I want to stick very close to our text. I want to stick very close to Ephesians 2, 11 and 22 to 22. I want to see two very simple, simple things this morning. The first thing is this, peace and unity in Jesus, and we could add in Jesus alone. And secondly, hospitality and lament, and that's going to be our point of response. So point number one, peace and unity in Jesus. Let's read Ephesians 2, 11 to 13 together. There Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, the Jewish world, as many of you know, could be divided in half. You have on, on one side the Jews, Israel, people chosen by God who claim Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their patriarchs, and separated from the world by their custom of circumcision, amongst other things. And on the other side of the world, you have everyone else, non-Jews or Gentiles. And it's to these people that Paul writes this. You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice, as Paul rightly records, the God of the Bible does not enter into covenant with every nation, with every people. He chooses and he elects the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, to be his special possession. But notice also this. At the very beginning, God blessed Israel to be a blessing to others. God calls people to him that they would in turn welcome the stranger and the sojourner. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we see this promise that God made to Abraham. Let me look there with you now. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And listen, Christ City, and in you, that's Abraham and in his descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, it's here in Genesis 12 that we find the seed for the biblical vision of unity in diversity. Of unity in diversity. That through one distinct nation, all the nations might know and come to worship and love the God who made them. That's what we find. It's a vision, if you keep on reading in the Old Testament, that Israel ultimately fails to live out. The story of the Old Testament often at times is a story of nationalistic pride, of keeping to themselves a message of salvation that was always intended to be shared, always intended to bless. But Paul says that in Christ and in the incarnation of the Son of God, something has changed. Look at our text today. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, his crucifixion. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, notice that phrase, one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, in the crucifixion of Jesus, in the crucifixion of Jesus, reconciliation happens, and we cannot miss this, in two very important ways. First, in the crucifixion, Jews and Gentiles alike are reconciled to God. There is, so to speak, vertical reconciliation. Why? Because both Jew and Gentile alike are alienated from God. Before our passage in Ephesians, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, verse 3. We all, all, notice that word, all, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature who? All of us, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But now, Paul says, we all have been brought near not into the commonwealth of Israel, but in a new community that transcends Israel. A new community where Jew and Gentile are on equal footing. So let me just say this. The cross of Jesus, it tells us very plainly, whether we're Chinese, whether we're white, whether we're African or Latino, that our race or ethnicity on its own, by itself, is not enough to save us. Sin and rebellion is not, strictly speaking, a white problem, or a black problem, or an Asian problem, or an indigenous problem. It is a universally human problem. We are all in need of being made into what we see here is a new humanity. And the good news of the cross is that Jesus died to create this new humanity, no longer hostile to God, no longer children of wrath. We are now children of the Father in Christ, hidden in Him. There is vertical reconciliation through the cross of Jesus. And it's through this vertical reconciliation that you and I can be, most importantly, reconciled one to another. One to another. Vertical reconciliation always, according to Paul, leads to horizontal reconciliation as well. I don't know if you caught this, but Paul's mention of the dividing wall of hostility is what some scholars believe to be a reference to a literal wall in the temple, a, a literal wall where the Jews uh, could, could come in the inner courts of the temple and the Gentiles were forbidden uh, to enter. They were kept out of the important parts of the temple, so to speak. And, and Jesus says, rather Paul says, that this wall has now, spiritually speaking, been torn down. This chasm has now been bridged. How? Well, through all of us together being joined to Christ. Paul builds on that temple imagery we saw a few weeks ago beautifully in 1 Peter. Do you remember that imagery? Paul builds on it when he says in verses 18 and 22 this, For through Jesus, we both, we both, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see, we're being grafted into a story. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built, notice this word, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, reconciliation with God vertically is the only means by which we can be reconciled to one another horizontally. Only in Jesus 
Only in Christ can we speak with any hope on this topic. See, without negating or diminishing what is good and beautiful and amazing in all of our cultures, Jesus calls us to forsake them when they conflict with his culture, with his household. Look at the life of, of William Carey. We see this dynamic at work in his life. William Carey is sometimes called the father of Protestant missions. He understood this very well. Carey, when he was in England, was very critical of the wealth and the apathy that he saw amongst other Christians. He's very critical of that sort of hoarding mentality in England. Uh, later in his life, Carey traveled to India as a missionary. And it was in India that Carey refused to baptize any person who still upheld the caste system. Carey recognized that a system that perpetuated terrible hardship and located worth in what family you were born into was incompatible with the gospel. Notice this. In both England and in India, Carey saw that this was not how we are to behave as the household of God. There is, so to speak, a third culture here, a third way of living. And so I asked, just foundationally this morning, foundationally and maybe simplistically, but to which household, which nation, which kingdom are you ultimately committed? Again, let me be abundantly clear. There is so much beauty, so much to be celebrated in our diverse culture, so much that the scriptures themselves affirm. But when we are committed to our ethnic household over the household of God, with furthering our people and our race and our way of living, we will always find ourselves justifying and excusing away things that run contrary to our new identity and indeed new community in Christ. Missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin, he said it like this. A preaching of the gospel that calls men and women to accept Jesus as Savior, but does not make it clear that discipleship means commitment to a vision of society radically different from that which controls our public life today must be condemned as false. One new humanity, we are one in Christ, citizens of one new nation who are part of one new household of God. And I believe firmly, Christ City, that this better story of the gospel, that we are one new humanity through the crucifixion of Jesus as we trust in him, I believe that this better story of the gospel speaks more hope, more truth, more love than any mode or method of racial reconciliation currently on offer today. And there are so many to choose from. See, there are some who suggest that the answer to the problem of Racism and, and racial reconciliation is us being colorblind. Colorblind. How do we fix racism, they say? Well, we just ignore race. Of course, the problem with this solution is that race exists. It does. Further, racism has plagued the hearts and the human heart from Abraham to Moses to Jonah to Paul to today. Ig ignoring race not only flattens the beautiful diversity of image bearers everywhere, it is like trying to cure cancer by ignoring it and hoping it goes away. See, the better story of the gospel says that at the end of the age, we won't be colorblind. 
When Jesus comes back, we won't be colorblind. No. We will be beautifully joined in worship by brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and language. And it's together we find this glorious moment of praise. Still, there are some who suggest that the problem of racism is strictly economic. It's economic. How do we fix racism? Well, we create economic pathways for minorities to thrive. Let me be clear, this method certainly has its merits. The economic method certainly has its place. But in another very important way, it fails to address the root issue of racism, which is what? Our wicked hearts. The fact that we are born, not children of God, but, but children of, of wrath, opposed to God, opposed to his kingdom. Christians believe in more than just a material world. So why would we only by ourselves or by themselves propose material or economic solutions? See, the better story of the gospel says, yes, yes, give financially to the ethnic other in need. But don't only give financially. Give your whole life. Give your home. Give your love. Give this new love you have in Christ and share it with this member of the same household. We have to keep on continuing because there are more models being proposed. Still, there are those who so idealize minority culture that the greatest cultural sin of our day is to critique it. But if it is true that we all once were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, how can a culture or how can a people be without reproach? How can a people be without sin? See, the better story says that while we all were once far from Christ, all of us, no matter what you look like, no matter what language you speak, all of us can be brought near if we trust in Jesus' death. No people are without sin, but thankfully, no people are without hope. Finally, let's just name it. There are many who would seek to lay the responsibility for racism and racist institutions at the feet of those in power, those in the majority. In our context, white people. And here I want to be very careful, but also very clear. For one, I'll begin here, to say that all problems lie within one ethnic group is to ignore the fundamental Christian teaching we've been seeing that, that all have sinned, that all have sinned. Outside of Christ, all, and history shows us this, all have the capacity to wield power in such a way that disadvantages the other and advantages the self. This is what Proverbs calls unrighteousness or wickedness, disadvantaging the other in order to advantage ourselves. At the same time, we need to be aware, cognizant, and careful to acknowledge that power has been horrifically abused by the majority in this country. It's been abused in ways that continue to have effects on the lives of people today. This past Wednesday was a day uh, when people around the country stopped to consider and remember the sobering and horrific reality of residential schools in Canada. A history that the church itself has played no small part in. What does the better story of the gospel 
have to say to those who survive the residential schools? Well, first, first the gospel speaks to the oppressor. The better story of the gospel says that Jesus used his power, used his advantage, used his privilege, not to belittle or oppress or squash, but that he emptied himself that we might be brought in. This is the Christian vision for power. It is giving it away for the benefit, for the sake of the other, for the stranger in our midst. As Christians who happen to be a part of the majority culture, if that's you like me this morning, with all of its benefits, we are called to act righteously by the Spirit in love as Jesus did. That's how the better story of the gospel speaks to the oppressor. It convicts us and shows us a new way forward. But the better story of the gospel speaks to those who have been historically oppressed as well. This past week, I read a story about a pastor leading a Bible study on the historic uh, Siksika Nation in southern Alberta. And a woman, after recalling some of her experience uh, enduring the residential schools, asked this question. She asked the pastor, is it okay if I pray in Blackfoot? See, this woman had been told that her language was a language of false, evil spirituality. That her language, therefore, was irredeemable. She could not pray in Blackfoot. But the better story of the gospel tells us that having been made into a new humanity, Jesus will return at the end of the age where he will be met with worship and praise in English, in Cantonese, in Arabic, and in Blackfoot. And friends, do we have an ear to hear our sister's story this morning? Do we have the heart to feel her pain? To recognize how this trauma has shaped her life and the lives of countless others. See, when did we begin to think that a Christian could respond to someone in their household with, get over it, or move on? When was that an acceptable Christian response? Is that how we should behave in the household of God? We are one new humanity in Christ, filled with Christ's Spirit and His love. We have to turn now and look at hospitality and lament. This is our section this morning dedicated to what our response should be. And the reality is, the the brief time I'm going to spend in this time of response is wholly insufficient. I hope conversations continue to community groups and beyond. I'd also love for you to send me any questions you have, and I can send you any resources that I've been reading in this season. But I want to zero in on two things this morning by way of response, and that's hospitality and lament. First, there is a reason this sermon is where it is in our series. There's a reason it's coming where it's coming. We cannot begin to think about healing racial division between us if we still harbor in our hearts a secret class of Lazarus-type people. People who are too far gone, people who we would never go to, and people who the gospel is not for. If there is still a group of people like that in your heart, we can't even begin to talk about this. You need to hear the word of Ephesians 2 this morning. We are one new humanity in Christ, blessed to be a blessing, to bring the stranger 
in. And as we saw last week, we also must put faces and names to our racial division and strife. There's a social theory uh, called a contact hypothesis, which basically says what Christians have been saying for millennia, what they've known for millennia. The way to kill prejudice towards a person or a people is to invite them into your home, is to spend time with them. And this gets at the heart of the problem this morning. See, we love to be comfortable. We love to spend time and be with people who look like us and think like us and eat like us. And there's nothing wrong with that in one sense. In another sense, if our comfort rules our day and rules our heart and never causes us to move beyond ourselves to welcome in the stranger, then we are not living according to the household of God. See, the idol of comfort in our lives, which looms so large in so many hearts, including my own, needs to be crucified. We need to be intentionally moving towards people who do not look like us, who do not talk like us, and who do not eat what we eat. The second thing is this. That was the first point. It's hospitality. We need to be a hospitable people. The second point is this, lament. There is a reason our next series is in Lamentations. There's a reason. One of the most powerful ways, it's not everything, but one of the most powerful ways we can stand alongside our brothers and sisters who have been oppressed, who have been the victims of racism, is by lamenting its evil. It's by listening really well, as a family does with each other, listening really well, posturing ourselves in humility, and lamenting Lamenting the injustice and wickedness, not only in this world, not only out there, but also in us, also in our hearts. Friends, it is 2020, and the illusion has been broken. No longer is there any doubt, even amongst the most affluent and powerful, that our world is not how it should be. As we'll see, learning to grieve Yet with hope, yet with hope, it's important. Learning to grieve as Christians is instrumental in our response to a hurting, broken, and divided world. I want to end today uh, by praying a prayer for Martin Luther King Jr. that is as relevant today as it was 70 years ago. Let's pray. Father, grant that we will love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds and love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. And we ask you, God, in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, to be with us. To be with us in our going out and our coming in, in our rising up and in our lying down, in our moments of joy and in our moments of sorrow, until the day when there shall be no sunset and no dawn. Amen.